0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've been given a lot of information about how to improve your mental health by learning new skills, releasing old pain, and generally deepening your knowledge and understanding of both yourself and other people. A major focus of the podcast is giving you great tools and hopefully teaching you how to use them really well. But the dirty secret of the personal growth industry, and self-help and psychology more broadly, is that many of those tools don't stick. Whether it's a New Year's resolution that's quickly abandoned, a new habit that fails to take, or a good piece of advice someone gets from a therapist that falls to the wayside after a few weeks, most change is temporary. And to be really open about this here, I've had more than a few problems with this personally. So what can we do to achieve the uh, holy grail of personal growth, lasting change in our hearts, minds, and behaviors? To help us figure that out, I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a bestselling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. I'm also happy to say that he's my dad. So dad, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really well personally, and I am seriously stoked, to use a California term from my childhood, (laughs) that we're talking about this subject.
0: Yeah, so we're doing this episode in part because I looked back through our catalog, and I realized that we haven't really done a focused How to Change Your Brain episode for at least a year or so, maybe longer. Our very, very first episode, which is actually just you talking in a little recording studio in like 2016 or 2015 or something, uh, is titled, I think, How to Have a Happier Brain. And since then, we kind of haven't done one. We talk about this topic a lot generally, but I thought it made sense to really dig into it for at least an episode because it is so foundational to your work um, and so fundamental to everything we do inside of the personal growth world. Before we get into the conversation, I do want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, The podcast recently passed a million downloads this year, which just blows my mind. And thank you so much for listening and for your support of the podcast. Uh, To celebrate that, we're actually going to be doing a giveaway, which is not something we've done before, for our podcast listeners. Five winners will receive hardcover copies of Rick's new book, Neurodharma, and also copies of Resilient, which Rick and I wrote together. They'll also get a card deck of daily practices based on Rick's book, Just One Thing, and finally, they'll receive a small signed print from Rick. You can enter by following the link in the description of today's podcast, and I've also posted it to the podcast and Rick's Instagram pages. To enter, you just need to submit your name and email address. Unfortunately, due to restrictions on shipping, the giveaway is only available to listeners in the United States, which I'm really sorry about. Also, I realized that I don't think I've ever actually mentioned this directly on the podcast before, which was a bit of an oversight. But of course, we have a bunch of social profiles. We're on Instagram at Podcast, and Rick and I both have profiles separately. We're also, of course, on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find links to all of that in the description of today's episode. So all of that said, long-time listeners are probably familiar with the word neuroplasticity. It comes up pretty regularly on the podcast. And it's also a big part of the work that you've done more broadly. So let's start there really quickly. What is neuroplasticity and what does it have to do with what we're talking about here today?
1: Plasticity is the property of any system to be changed. It can be changeable. Neuroplasticity is the property of the nervous system in humans and other animals with nervous systems such that the information moving through the nervous system the function of the nervous system is to process information. Information flows through the nervous system while enlisting physical processes to represent it. And as those flows occur, uh, including the flows of information that underlie our own experiences of liking or disliking, wanting, gaining or losing, as those experiences are happening, mental activity, entails underlying neural activity. And repeated patterns of mental activity that draw upon repeated patterns of neural activity leave lasting physical traces behind. Changes that endure in neural structure or function. And those enduring changes are the basis for any lasting change for the better in a person's mind or heart.
0: That's a great summary. The language in it had a little bit of technicality to it. So I'll just kind of unpack that for a, uh, for a forest level of comprehension, as opposed to a Rick level of comprehension. <laughs> I am not a neurologist. Um, so everything we think, feel and do is based on patterns that happen in the brain. Uh, to put it another way, for you to get better at any skill from playing the piano to doing your taxes to uh, talking to people more skillfully your brain needs to change in some way. Uh, When I practiced the viola when I was 12 years old, my brain was changing as I was practicing in some fashion. Uh, There are parts of this that we understand really well. There are parts of this that we understand less well right now, but our knowledge about the brain is changing and improving at really incredible rates these days. So what this means is that anytime we learn something new, particularly something that, as we're saying, lasts, we form new pathways in the brain. And particularly, the brain is changed based off of our interaction with the environment. So stuff that we do kind of out in the physical world or psychologically inside of ourselves um, tends to have a big impact on those connections.
1: Oh, you exactly said it. And uh, there's this saying from the Canadian psychologist, uh, Donald Hebb, from his work, that is, neurons which fire together, wire together. So we have the two-stage process of any kind of lasting change for the better or change for the worse. We begin with an experience, the, uh, the basis of which physically is neurons firing together, neural activity of one kind or another, which then, if there's to be any lasting change, let's say for the better, they must wire together as well. Mm. And that's really quite literal as one of the major mechanisms of what's called, get ready for it, Forrest, experience-dependent neuroplasticity. In other (laughs) words, um, literally new connections form over a period of, of seconds and minutes. Also, existing connections between neurons inside your head right now get stronger or weaker based on learning, learning in the broadest sense. There can be increased ebbs and flows of neurochemicals of different kinds, uh, like dopamine or oxytocin. There can also be changes in the expression of genes deep in the bowels of the nuclei of different neurons. There can also be greater or less coordination between different parts of the brain that do different things as a person changes for the better over time. Mm. And what's amazing is that we can deliberately use our mind to stimulate neural activity, and through stimulating it in a targeted way, strengthen it so that we can use our mind to change our brain, to change our mind for the better.
0: So I'm gonna give a couple examples of exactly what you're talking about here, because the one word answer for how do you create lasting change is really simple. It's practice, that's it. That's the one word answer. we repeatedly do things and that changes our brain. And then as you said, we can kind of take advantage of that process internally To change not just external skills, but internal skills, if you want to kind of think about it that way as well, whether these be an inclination more toward happiness and fulfillment and contentment, or an inclination toward taking a little bit more time to cool down before you go talk to your partner, or they're about being a little bit more goal directed in a positive way from a place of fulfillment instead of a place of lack. Whatever it is, we can practice those things and thereby change the brain. So a couple quick examples of this in practice. Uh, A classic piece of research was conducted on taxi drivers in London who have to memorize really complicated layouts of streets. Um, This was back when taxis were a thing. I don't know if they're still a thing in London. Uh, These days it's more Uber and Lyft and so on. But okay, back with taxis. Those drivers who did that successfully actually had an increase in their brain's gray matter associated with the regions that are responsible for visual-spatial processing and memory. That is a lot of kind of fancy language, but basically it means that their brain changed based on the fact that they were doing all of this memorization. Yeah,
1: it's like working a muscle, Yep, and metaphorically, and the muscle gets bigger when you work it. So yeah, they grew tissue in that part of their brain. You got it.
0: So that's kind of a out in the world skill to put it a certain kind of way, memorization. And you might say, okay, but that's out there. What about stuff in here inside of me? And there's actually increasing support for the idea that change in the brain can be actively directed based on deliberate practice, including change in the brain that relates to internal experience. So there is some really interesting research on long-time meditators. There have been brain scans and imaging that's compared monks to novice meditators even, not even like general population people, but people who have meditated a couple times in their life, maybe they do it uh, casually.
1: Like you, Forrest, who automatically. Like me, for instance,
0: more. I am am a casual meditator. You are a, a long time meditator. I think that that <laughs> distinction is fair. And what these studies found was that there was a, and I quote, dramatic increase in the monk's high frequency brain activity. These are gamma waves during compassion meditation. So when the monk was uh, actively activating, I guess, actively activating. Uh, experience of compassion or compassion toward other people, their brain was literally emitting a different kind of wave radiation from a novice meditator. And this suggests that they were activating some kind of state in their body that was materially different from people who had practiced less, which is super interesting.
1: Oh, yeah. And to build on that, uh, as a quick highlight, For people who routinely practice mindfulness, including in a more formal way, such as one or five or 20 or 45 minutes of meditation, let's say, people who routinely do that have um, improved structure and function in regions of their brain that support improvements in four major personal capacities. Mm. First, to regulate their attention. Second, to be aware of their body. And to be more self-aware in general. Third, to be better able to regulate their emotions and their impulses and their reactions. And fourth, to have a more um, light-hearted and integrated sense of self. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, I would, I would go for all of those things.
1: So. Well, you ought to meditate more. <laughs>
0: I'm just giving you a hard time. You've been getting on me about this for at least 15 years, if not longer. So, (laughs) I have failed. No, no, no. I, 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 every, literally every year, one of my commitments (laughs) is to meditate more. And thus far, I'm like, oh, for 15. Uh, So maybe next year, guys, maybe next year. Okay. So, anyways, we've checked a lot of big boxes so far. We've confirmed that A, your brain can change. That's a good thing. Yep. You know, you can wake up happier tomorrow than you are today at a trait level, not just a state level. window. The second thing is that we do that through practice. By repeating states, whether you're practicing the violin or you're practicing happiness, you can change the brain. And we also know that we can practice things that are not just external, practicing the violin, for example, but we can practice things that are internal, that experience that those monks had and experiencing internal states that led to a different kind of experience inside of them from somebody who hadn't practiced those internal states. That's a lot of really big boxes checked already. What somebody naturally might uh, respond to this whole thing with so far is that, well, that's all well and good, but I find it really darn hard (laughs) to create lasting change in my life. So if the brain is designed to be able to change, why is it so hard for us to change so often? Why do people drop their New Year's resolutions, fail to stick to their habits, or uh, fail to walk out of the therapist's office with really lasting change after a couple of weeks of going?
1: To summarize a lot of stuff, your brain, your brain, us, <laughs> and <laughs> my brain, everybody's brain, is really good at learning from bad experiences but relatively bad at learning from good experiences, even though learning from good experiences of positive qualities is the fundamental process of growing those positive qualities Mm. inside ourselves. In other words, the brain is really good at learning from single experiences of worry, hurt, anger, or inadequacy, but it takes, the repetition of many experiences of gratitude or self-worth or calm for us to actually shift from state to trait. And as I hope we'll talk about, this means therefore that we should deal with the bad as we need to, but not marinate in it. And then second, in particular, when we are having beneficial experiences, including experiences of things we'd like to develop in ourselves, It's very important to be active in our relationship with those experiences. That's why, as you said at the beginning, the dirty little secret in psychotherapy world, mindfulness world, self-help world altogether, is that it's easy to have beneficial experiences. And it takes more than simply having an experience to grow from it. Mm, Experiencing mm -hmm. does not equal learning and so much of the money is left on the table because people do not engage their experiences actively in ways that are really built out and developed, Mm -hmm. in part with your help. People do not typically engage their experiences actively so that they really, really sink in. Mm -hmm. And that is an enormous opportunity for all of us, which then leads to a steepening of our own healing curve and growth curve in this life.
0: And the phrase there that people are probably familiar with is negativity bias. The brain has a negativity bias. It is, as you like to say, like Velcro for bad experiences and like Teflon for good experiences. And you can think about this if you look, just look back over your own life. If, uh, you know, you come home at the end of the day, there were probably I know, most normal days, there were 20 or 30 good things that happened to you that were small. You know, the cafeteria had the kind of food that you liked, and you enjoyed your coffee in the morning, and you had a pleasant conversation with your friend at work, and whatever else. And there were probably 5 or 10 bad things that happened to you, like somebody cut you off on the freeway, a dog barked at you suddenly and startled you, uh, you got into like a little snarl with your partner, whatever else. What do you remember at the end of the day? What do you remember when you're going to sleep at night? Nine times out of 10, if not 99 times out of 100, without deliberate effort otherwise, you're going to remember the negative experience. And as we were talking about toward the beginning, the brain is changed by what it rests upon. So the more that you rest upon those negative experiences, the more that they just kind of come up unbidden in your mind, the more that you're going to be impacted by them. And this is a big part of why it is so hard for us to change our ingrained behaviors that are kind of built into the brain at this point, particularly if you are like me and you're over the age of 30. Um, The brain does tend to be a lot more plastic the younger we are, but there's actually really interesting research. Uh, For a long time, people thought that the brain stopped changing past about the age of 20, certainly 25, definitely 30. It just was dead at that point. You're going to get no more change out of the brain. And more recent research has come out that's really showed that that's absolutely not the case. And your brain is absolutely capable of changing even at 60, 70, 80 years old.
1: I think it's really important to appreciate the ways in which, again and again and again, we'll have some kind of wholesome, pleasurable, beneficial experience. In the moment, it'll be nice. In the moment, it'll be useful. And then, whoosh. It is gone. It feels like it washed through us, like water through a sieve. And for people who are in any kind of helping profession, including very broadly, educators, parents, supervisors who are training others, as well as coaches and counselors of all kinds, it's really important, I think, for us to face the fact that again and again and again, we focus on helping people have particular experiences and then we ignore entirely whether those experiences have any lasting value for the person. Mm. It's a little bit as if we were interested in nutrition, but all we cared about was putting food on the tongue of people (laughs) and ignored entirely the possibility that they would chew and swallow. Mm, mm -hmm. And so much is missing there. That's a great analogy. as a detail, yeah, on that, that's really quite haunting. Um, I think psychotherapy is a noble profession. It's actually on average, average is a key word, really quite effective compared to other interventions. Yeah, but research shows that the moderate, in the language of so-called effect sizes, the moderate average level of response to treatment for say depression or anxiety 30 years ago is very decent, very moderate, but it's no better today 30 years later, Mm. there's no evidence whatsoever for an improvement in average response to treatment after 30 years of research on counseling, psychotherapy, new ideas, new developments, and so forth. And I think it's because we may have gotten better at activating certain states in people, but we've gotten no better Mm. at teaching people how to internalize them as traits that they can carry with themselves wherever they go.
0: That's really interesting. And you're gonna have to remember to send me the study because I'm definitely going to include it in the Patreon notes for this episode. So please send me that one. Okay, I want to uh, also flag one other reason why it's hard for us to change. And this gets to a favorite topic of mine, it's human exceptionalism. Uh, we, We really like to regard ourselves as being special and different from other animals. Because we are special and different, we got big old brains. Human brides.
1: exceptionalism. Human
0: exceptionalism. Yeah. What? <laughs> Just what I'm saying. Like humans like to think that they're exceptional. We all like to feel that we are superior to our animal cousins.
1: You came up with this
0: idea? No, of no. This is not a. This is not an original idea. I'm sure that I can't imagine this is an original. The idea.
1: phrase I never heard. All of. right. That's pretty well, awesome. There you go. So human I exceptionalism. I think you're freaking exceptional. So
0: there. <laughs> Well, are you, Dad. Too, I am both a I human and medium exceptional. So, okay, <laughs> okay, here's what I mean. We like to think that we're not big monkeys, but guess what? We're big monkeys. We're really effing smart, but we're basically just big monkeys. And here's the thing about animals. Animals are designed to spend as little energy as they need to spend all the time. Mm. Basically, we're built to conserve energy. Conserve resources. Yeah, we want to conserve resources. We're living in a super harsh environment. We don't know where our next meal is coming from, all of that good stuff. So, we are built to not expend energy. And this means that inertia is an enormous force in our lives. You know, an object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays at rest. Habits are a phenomenal tool for saving energy because they reduce the number of choices that your brain has to actively make. So if you have an ingrained pattern of behavior, it's incredibly easy to just repeat it because the brain doesn't have to spend any energy doing something different. And the brain really does not want to spend that energy. So that means that if we're gonna have to create any, um, so that means that if we want to create real change in our life, whether it be practices outside of us or practices that are inside of us, we need to expend deliberate effort. And again, we're fighting the natural systems of the body that do not want to spend that effort because they were built under conditions where there weren't a lot of additional resources. But these days, uh, live in in our current human lives, for most of us, there's plenty of food, there's plenty of water, and those energy inputs are a lot of the time what the body was conserving when it was resisting making the kind of changes that we're talking about here. And so that's kind of a really interesting way at which um, we can look at this whole thing in terms of our evolutionary neurobiology and how that made it hard effectively to change our habits today.
1: What I would like to say here is that the process of internalization is remarkably simple and enjoyable to do. Mm. And it's quick, it's private, Uh, it's under our control. We just forget to do it mm. again and again and again. So can I use you, Forrest, as my guinea pig? Yeah, then? I will I will Ye- be the guinea
0: pig, and I would love, as I think again. you're doing here, to kind of move into a practical example.
1: Yeah, yet again, you will be my guinea pig <laughs> as you've been for more than 30 yes, years. Yes, 32 okay. and a half years. Uh, there you are. All right, what is one thing you would like to develop more of inside yourself?
0: Ooh. Um... Wow. Well, I could give some very personal answers to this, but I'm just going to give a a medium personal answer to this. Yeah, there you are. And I would like to develop more, I'm trying to find the right way to word this, but basically happy drive. Like I would okay. like it to feel more fulfilling in the process of doing my work.
1: Okay, great. So when do you experience happy drive?
0: Hmm. When I'm interacting with other people related to work, like when I'm talking to somebody, when I'm doing one of these interviews for the podcast with you, is another mm-hmm. place where I experience some happy drive. Uh, yeah, when I'm doing a creative project, a lot of the time, like when I'm doing some video editing stuff or, or podcast editing, when I'm doing a lot of like thinking about some creative project that also mm-hmm. often gets me kind of excited, generally, it's in the implementation where happy Drive tends to fall away, and I just get yeah. exhausted with it, yeah.
1: Okay, great. So think of that as like having a song playing in your inner iPod. Okay, You're experiencing it. We, we cannot learn from things we don't experience. We must experience as the first step of any kind of lasting learning. All right, so then the question becomes, and you could do it even right now, I don't know how yeah, much no, I'm, I'm of The sense along. Of, your, of happy drive you're having right now. But for example, when you're having an experience of happy drive, can you become mindful of the fact that you're having that experience and sustain awareness of it. Mm -hmm. In other words, to stay with the feeling, recognize the feeling of whatever you wanna grow. You can do Mm -hmm. that for a breath or longer, right? Kind of marinate in it. Also, what's it feel like in your body when you're having a sense of happy drive?
0: Oh, um, I. Didn't realize that was a question, sorry. Uh, I thought that was to <laughs> you the- went, You went the, into your body yeah, there, yeah. I thought that was the amorphous podcast audience you as opposed to you, Forrest, but okay, me. Um, yeah. uh, I was actually just dropping into it. I'm glad you said that because I immediately kind of thought to say, oh, if he doesn't say something about somatics, you should probably say something about somatics here. Um, yeah, uh, for me, I feel more weighted into my chair. I, I felt uh-huh. my uh, my chest felt like a little bit more open and kind of warm. My seat felt Mm. a little heavier into the chair. Um, Those were two things that I really noticed. I I felt kind of uh, buoyant and softly happy. I'm not sure if happiness was like the driving emotion, but there was this kind of like little feeling of bubbly contentment.
1: Yeah, I suspect like I would probably uh, name Vitality Mm, maybe. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in the mix there. So here we have, first, staying with the experience for a breath or longer. Second, feeling it in your body. And then here's a third hack for your brain that promotes neuroplastic change. Uh, What do you like about
0: this experience?
1: What do you find enjoyable or meaningful
0: in it? Mm. About my sensation of it or just like the feeling of quote-unquote happy drive? The overall sense of
1: happy drive, which might have a somatic element, Mm -hmm. might have a conceptual element, a cognitive element,
0: you know, just. I like that it really brings me into uh, feeling fulfilled, Hmm. that I'm doing something that's worthwhile as opposed to just kind of clocking the hours. That's very rewarding for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. It could be also that there's pleasure in feeling Enlivened.
0: Yeah, it feels good. feels good in my body. Yeah. It's a pleasant experience. Yeah,
1: and how is this experience personally relevant to you, meaningful to you personally to have an experience of happy
0: drive? Wow. Well, I think it attaches really closely to aspiration for me. Like I, I, I feel, yeah. um, mm-hmm. man, maybe this is just like my mental models coming into play here, but I, I feel quote unquote like a good person when sure. I am pursuing a goal with good feeling inside of me.
1: Yeah, we, we tend to grow from the experiences that are personally salient mm. or mm-hmm. relevant, meaningful. Great, a lot of research on all these things. And so thanks for being my guinea pig. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're giving your body up for science. But that's an example right here of the simplicity of steepening your growth curve. Mm, mm -hmm. And while we don't have the technology currently for this, we're probably 50 or more than 100 years from that kind of technology, I bet you a nickel at least that if we had that kind of technology, we would begin to see durable changes of neural structure and function inside your brain over the course of the minute or two that we were exploring these different ways to heighten the internalization Mm. of a beneficial experience. In Mm. this case, happy drive.
0: Yeah, I think that was really lovely. That was a great kind of uh, in the moment life coaching you did with me there. So kind of as you just did, there are a lot of practices that people can do to install different kinds of change in the brain whether it's building new productivity habits or internalizing the experience of happy drive or even trying to soften, unwind from uh, some really deep-seated psychological material. I'm thinking right now of the conversation we had just a little while ago with Pete Walker about complex PTSD and developmental trauma and some uh, great advice and suggestions that he gave during that conversation. So rather than focusing in on any one of those things specifically, because this is kind of a general episode, let's focus more on those broad principles and tactics, and particularly ones for creating lasting change in terms of our psychology, our mental health, our resting state of well-being, whatever. If you had somebody walk into your office and they said to you, Rick, I've been working on this issue for years, and I just can't get it to change. It's like it's intractable what are the kinds of questions that you'd ask them? And what would them saying that kind of make you think about?
1: First, I would double check that they've actually sustained skillful practice. Mm. And often people actually haven't. Mm. Uh, They haven't, uh, in particular, focused on the internalization, the second necessary stage of learning. Now, on the other hand, and this is not about blaming the victim or being accusatory. It's just being a good clinician where you're investigating what have people actually done and what have the results been, which then leads to truly, if someone has genuinely made efforts and they have not had traction, then I think it's important to look at a deeper level. First, both outside them and inside them. And what I mean by that is if a person is trying to develop, let's say, self-worth, and every day at work and at home, people are criticizing them and finding fault and tearing them down, it's really hard mm-hmm. to develop self-worth from the inside out. So sometimes it's appropriate to look at people's environments that are, get, that are obstructing their, their growing and their healing. It also can be helpful to look internally at your own physiology and your physical health because if there's a physiological basis, for example, to depressed mood, that disrupts learning in the broadest sense. Sometimes it's, depression is sometimes described as a learning disorder,
0: mm, uh-huh.
1: in the sense that people who are mildly to moderately depressed are routinely having beneficial positive experiences, but they don't have traction, they don't sink in. So I think it's, how, it's important to pay attention to illness of different kinds. Depressed mood is a common symptom of illness. Um, other things that are disrupting the process of experience-dependent neuroplasticity. So let's rule that out. Let's suppose, no, there are no hardware issues and there are no big environmental issues. So now let's look more deeply into a person's psychology. I would uh, encourage people in general, I think it's helpful to focus on three things. Uh, And this is where I give people the five-minute challenge, which has three parts to it. First, over the course of your day, Look for a handful of times over the day when you're feeling something good, something useful. Maybe there's a moment of greater skillfulness with your partner. Maybe there's a sense of relief. Maybe there's a sense of enjoyment with your dog. Whatever it might be, slow down for a breath or longer to let that sink in, to sink into the experience while it sinks into you. That takes about a minute a day total. Second, pick one thing you're trying to grow. So this is where this person, let's say, has that one thing they're trying to develop. Mm -hmm. And look for one or more clear experiences of that thing you're trying to grow every day. And when you're experiencing it, value it. This is a high priority experience. You care about this experience. You really wanna take it in because you're motivated to actually grow it. That'll take another minute or so every day. And then the last of the third elements of the five-minute challenge is every day reset to deep green. What I mean by that hmm. is every day, take a minute or more, and this would be a good meditation for you, Forrest, if you wanna do it, <laughs> uh, to, um, to just kind of marinate in a general sense that you can find your way into of a growing sense of open-heartedness, you know, warm-heartedness with a feeling of growing calm and settling down and an opening into a greater sense of well-being and contentment with things as they are, deep down inside yourself. That is about five minutes. So that's a simple thing. People can give that five minutes. And then with regard more specifically to people who are um, having a hard time to develop something, one of the things that can sometimes happen is let's say they wanna develop one thing, but they're obstructed, they're blocked in the development of it by other things. For example, let's take self-worth, something I've worked on over the years, feeling adequate. Let's say a person is having an experience of being praised by other people, that they do internalize, but it goes into a kind of silo that's separated from this other material, maybe rooted in their own childhood, in which people were rejecting, dismissive, devaluing, and so forth. So that then creates the opportunity to use the positive experience to link to and gradually neutralize and even replace the negative material.
0: So I want that to be the next place that we go here. Before we go there, I just wanna name two major environmental factors because you were talking about, okay, maybe there's some issue inside of the psychology, persistent low-grade depression, something like that, that's uh, making it harder for somebody to internalize learning. In their biology. In their biology, yeah. There are two big external things that I wanna just kind of name real quickly mostly for the sake of doing our due diligence here. They're the two big S's, stress and sleep. There is an enormous amount of research that suggests that people who are under a lot of stress have a harder time learning. This is for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, One that I suspect, I don't know if this has been borne out in the research or not, but my suspicion is that some of it has to do with what I was talking about earlier about inertia and energy expenditure. If you are under stress, the systems of your body are expending more energy, Mm. to kind of put it a certain sort of way. And that means that there are limited energetic resources to be devoted to other things, like for instance, learning a new skill. As a total aside, we have never talked about this, maybe we'll talk about it on another episode. This is why a lot of people who have a challenging school environments really struggle to learn. We got into that a little bit in our conversation with Bruce Perry on developmental trauma, if you're into that topic. Mm. Uh, the second one is sleep. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a reasonable chance that you've heard of Matthew Walker. Uh, he's done a ton of amazing work on sleep. I would really recommend his material to you, but the short version is sleep is really essential, and it really helps us learn. So those two things said, If you've been interested in the material we've been talking about so far, uh, now's probably a good time to let you know. Rick actually has an online training course called the Positive Neuroplasticity Training. It's a six-week, again, online course that's focused on helping people achieve change that lasts. And uh, it's coming up really soon. I think that registration for it is currently open. I know that you're excited about it. Uh, It's one of your favorite offerings. So is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh,
1: I think that... The worse a person's life, in a sense, the more challenged they are, the more stresses they're facing, the more important it is to become skillful at growing strengths inside of various kinds, including the strengths of gratitude, contentment, and happiness. Those are inner strengths for which a lot of research has shown. They improve physical health outcomes and actually have a causal extension of a person's lifespan. They literally help, on average, people live longer to have greater happiness inside themselves. So the kinds of things that we explore in that program are especially relevant when the oatmeal hits the fan in your life.
0: Mm -hmm. It's
1: more important than ever to reclaim the power and learn how to use the power that we all actually innately have to grow greater strengths inside ourselves, which is Mm. most fundamentally what that program's about. It's really about the essence of self-reliance, how Mm. to take charge of and become very effective at the process of growing um, and healing in this life.
0: Mm. Really well said. So that first live Q&A session, it has both a recorded component and a live component, is actually going to be on September 22nd, and that's with Rick. Uh, If you can't make it, no worries, everything's recorded and you'll have access to it later. And finally, if you're a mental health clinician or practitioner and you're looking for continuing education units, I know a lot of people are looking for those right now because the pandemic has really changed availability there. They're gonna be available through the supplementary professional course. And if you're a podcast listener, you can use the coupon code bwell 50 to get an extra $50 off the already discounted price. So that little blurb out of the way, uh, you mentioned something a second ago about how you can have a positive experience, but have it kind of bounce into negative material, maybe even negative self-concept material that you have inside of yourself that limits its internalization. Is that more or less right? Oh,
1: yeah. For example, um, there are a lot of people that have very good self-esteem. They can give you a list of positive qualities they have who deep down inside feel bad about themselves. They have very low self-worth. So. One of the things that's really um, powerful is to use authentic, not pie in the sky, not looking at the world through rose-colored glasses, actual authentic positive experiences to actually use those to compensate for and to soothe and to ease and even to gradually heal and replace negative material that they're well-matched to. For example, let's suppose a person has a chronic sense of anxiety for various reasons. Maybe they're temperamentally anxious, maybe they've been traumatized, maybe they're in situations that are alarming and threatening. What can a person do? Well, deliberately, a person could focus on resources, experiences, positive strengths or traits inside themselves that are natural antidotes to anxiety. For example, they could focus on experiences of determination or, and gritty fortitude. And we're ha- when they're having those experiences, really marinate in them and then do what I call linking, where you're aware of two things at the same time in your mind. Mainly you're aware of the strength that you're focused on, like gritty fortitude, determination, kind of a scruffy, I will get through this kind of spirit, while off to the side could be the feeling of anxiety or feeling overwhelmed or um, uh, that there's a threat there. And then you you can get a sense since both those things are present in your mind at the same time and neurons that fire together wire together, both those patterns of neural activation are occurring at the same time, the positive can associate with the negative. And gradually even, you can get a sense of the positive in effect kind of going into the negative material, soothing it, and even dislodging it. To use Mm. a metaphor, if your mind is like a garden, we can, first of all, focus on planting more flowers there. And second, we can use those flowers to crowd out weeds. There's less room for the weeds in our garden. And third, even, we can use flowers to gradually uproot the weeds and replace them.
0: Hmm. I'd like to talk about that in terms of self concept mm. for a second, because this is kind of a pet topic of mine and I would love your take on it. Sometimes what happens is we're trying to do a certain kind of learning and it runs into an internal block that we have because we view ourselves in a certain kind of way. Mm. And that learning can't enter us because. The self concept block is too big and the learning is contradictory to the self concept block. That sounds a little high minded. So, to make it really simple, um, let's say that I view myself as a head oriented person, as I did and to an extent still do, um, and certainly did in a much more turned up way for many, many years. So, I'm a rational, brain driven, just give me the facts, baby kind of guy. And I have an experience with somebody else where they say, wow, Forrest, that was really empathic of you. Or wow, Forrest, that was really thoughtful of you. or like, wow, that was just really nice of you. It's tougher for me to feel that good experience and therefore get the self-learning out of it because it runs into that self-concept of, no, I'm a cognitive person. I'm not a heart person, to do kind of the traditional dynamic that many people raise, to... uh, raise the obvious point. These things aren't in contrast to each other at all. You can be both a head person and a heart person. We have a lot of content related to that that I've got into in the past, so I won't repeat it all here. So this self-concept, in effect, becomes a kind of limiting belief. I am not the kind of person who X, whatever X is. And I just really encourage everyone who's listening to take a moment and think to themselves what their self-concepts mm. are, What is your I'm the kind of person who blank? Particularly if that blank is associated with some, uh, you know, quote unquote negative behavior that you're trying to change, something that isn't serving you anymore, to maybe put it in a slightly softer language, to think about what some of the elements of self-concept that you have that are associated with that thing that you're trying to change and how they might be kind of getting in the way of you changing it.
1: Right. So you're speaking of, in part, the classic issue of cognitive dissonance, in other yeah, words, totally. It's hard to integrate information that's discordant with, or discrepant mm-hmm. with, an underlying paradigm, an underlying yeah, worldview. And totally, and as we've talked about, Jean Piaget, one of the early child psychologists, had this distinction between what he called two kinds of learning between assimilation and accommodation, assimilation being. You know, incorporating new information into an existing structure without changing the structure. And then accommodation, which is one in which we encounter information that calls us to actually change our structures. And mm. accommodation is much more cognitively challenging. So, what to do about it? Uh, one thing we can do is to appreciate that there is a place for cognitive learning, not just emotional or somatic or motivational learning, but actually revising our sense of ourselves. And I could tell you a yeah, little story absolutely. about yeah myself. Uh, I grew up, as you know, kind of shy and withdrawn and very young going through school. And I kind of thought of myself as a wimp. You know, I was often picked last for sports teams. You know, I rolled into puberty probably later than some other kids. And so I just didn't feel good about myself. And, and then in midway in my 20s, um, I had this kind of revelation. It just literally hit me really hit me. I was reflecting on my childhood and it suddenly clarified for me that growing up, I had been a nerd, but not a wimp. And there was episode after episode after episode that just kind of flashed through my, my mind in which I endured, you know, bullying and of one kind or another, or I fought back and I held my own ground. And like, wow, yeah, scrawny, skinny, <laughs> dorky kid with glasses, but not a wimp. And that was a shift of self-concept that was cognitive, which had then a cascade of emotional benefits for me too. So we can shift our self-concept as well by in this linking process, looking for evidence that disconfirms those old views of ourselves and incorporate uh, new information in. Uh, One of the more Mm -hmm. profound ways to do this that uh, I find is very touching actually even almost sacred, is to help yourself realize that you're a basically good person. Many people can readily recognize that others, even those they don't know well at all, are basically good people, not perfect, not saints, but basically good people. But they won't grant that same blessing to themselves. They won't give themselves that same recognition. And it's quite touching to let it kind of sink in. Ah, I'm actually a basically good person. I work in progress. I got some things to keep improving, but a basically good person. And that's such a refuge to rest in the felt sense of being a basically good person and, and the felt sense of the knowing, the conviction. We can acquire conviction about certain ideas or perspectives that we might initially hold kind of lightly or, oh yeah, that's a good idea, whatever. But we can develop a bone deep conviction about them, that um, is something we can then rely upon in in ways that are very beneficial.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really lovely. And to kind of keep on going with that question of how do we change Mm -hmm. our concept of the self, for me, it's really, for me, it's been really helpful to think about where my patterns come from, Mm. whether that's my patterns of behavior, my patterns of self-concept, whatever, and to kind of go through them and think, wait, is this how I want to be? Not just, is this how I am, but is this how I want to be? And I think that's a really kind of game-changing question. It's it's such a simple and fundamental one, but it's a total game-changer because it moves you into agency. It moves you into the feeling that you're not just kind of stuck with how you are, but instead you're an active participant right now in this moment of the creation of yourself. And I think that that's really lovely. That's so powerful to frame it as active participation. You're not just like uh, experiencing who you are, you are creating it to an extent.
1: Forrest, that is so beautifully said. And it's, you know, you have to rein me in routinely because I just, by my nature and also where I am at my stage of life, you know, I kind of can move, I can go way out in the vapors, <laughs> you know what I Because mean? I'm kind of living more and more in the vapors. Uh, you know, which I'm glad, (laughs) frankly, trust in God, but tie your camel still, but in any case. (laughs) (laughs) My point though, is this idea that you can participate in who you are becoming.
0: Mm.
1: We are all becoming, you know, much research shows on average that roughly a third of the factors that shape us are baked into our DNA. Okay, Mm. that's what's heritable on average. The other two-thirds is up for grabs, for better or worse, based on external influences and our own internal processes of how we engage with them. And that two-thirds is rife with opportunity, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. to feel that you know that we can really let go of some of that old crud. We can release the ballast in the hot air balloon of our life, right? That we can just disengage from. We can put distance between us and the train wreck of our childhood. That's fantastic. That's Mm -hmm. so great, and Mm -hmm. I love how you put it there. Participate in the creation, the manifestation of your own life.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and um, just to kind of expand on that maybe a little tiny bit more, the other part of it that has been really helpful for me is looking at how I got those patterns yeah. and really appreciating the impact of formative experiences. And we've talked about this so much on the podcast. It's a topic that I love. But just the impact of developmental experiences on us all yeah. um, the things that happened to you when you were zero to 10 years old, maybe particularly the things that happened to you when you were zero to two years old. And really respecting and kind of giving yourself a break for the fact that you were a larva, you know, you were a pupa. You did not have a lot of agency in those environments. So the things that happened to you weren't your fault, but they had an enormous amount of impact on the person that you are today. Mm. So it's both a kind of um, love and appreciation and forgiveness directed at that person You know, that little you that created who you are now and also appreciating, okay, I didn't have a hand in that, but now I do have agency and responsibility today. So what am I going to do about it? Um, and that has also been a immensely useful exercise for me. One part of that has been uh, going back through, as I've talked about in the past, and watching kind of old family videos. Mm. We have this big cache of old VHS tapes from 1992 or whatever. Thanks to
1: who? Thanks
0: to who? Thanks to dad. Thanks okay, to dad. who okay. just, was just wondering, relentless <laughs> with his camcorder when we were younger. And I actually have many distinct memories of being like, dad, turn off the camcorder.
1: <laughs> know, because we, we
0: were just like, oh, dad's always got the camera out. And of course, your six-year-old self, you're worried about if you look cool and am I going to look good on the camera. And <laughs> So it was, a little, it was a little threatening to have that video camera out all the time.
1: Understandably, so. I get it.
0: But today, very grateful that we have that repository. So not everyone has that repository of old video, but anything you can interact with that relates to yourself as a child. Ask your parents if you have yeah. a good relationship with them and you can ask them that kind of a question. Look at old art you created in your three-year-old class if you have any of it, whatever it is. I think that like trying to get in touch with that little person can be a very helpful part of this whole process.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true.
0: So as we come to the end here, kind of final question, do you have any last thoughts, things you would like to add to this whole conversation on how to change your brain?
1: I would just say that I've developed this material a lot in the book, Hardwiring Happiness and uh-huh. in my TED talk on mm-hmm, the uh-huh. process of taking in the good, to put it in a really simple way, and, and my model that I use, um, my framework that I use the acronym HEAL for, which really summarizes the process of taking charge of who we are becoming by having beneficial experiences of whatever you wanna develop in yourself, and then installing them by enriching them and absorbing them, so we have H, E, and A, And then optionally, if you like, linking them, linking positive to negative to um, ease and soothe and even replace the negative material. So there's a fair amount of material about that. But the essence of it, I would really like to emphasize with people, kind of summarized in that little mini coaching session you and I had in which you Mm -hmm. were so brave and (laughs) (laughs) put up your body for science, in that the process of internalization usually, feels really sweet, Mm. really intimate with yourself and simple and genuine and quick and private. Uh, It's a wonderful thing to do uh, and it can feel really good. And it's so important to appreciate that we just forget to do it again and again over the course of our day. Mm. Interestingly, as we reach for beneficial experiences and then again and again internalize them into ourselves, we feel filled up increasingly unconditionally. So there's less and less movement to reach for what's outside us because we feel already like we've got it inside.
0: Mm. Well, I think that's a great place to end today's episode. So to give a incredibly quick summary, today we were talking about how to change the brain. Summarized by the word neuroplasticity, your brain is quote-unquote plastic. That means that it can change. It's not fixed in one form. The way that we create that change is through active practice. I gave the examples of the London taxi crab drivers and monks performing various kinds of meditation that can over time actually change structures inside of the brain. We then talked about some of the things that get in the way of changing our brains. The two big ones that we named were first of all, the brain's negativity bias, our tendency to linger on the bad things that happen to us, And then second, I raised energy conservation, essentially. The brain likes habits, it doesn't really want to change, inertia is a powerful thing. So we have to expend a lot of energy if we want to really change the brain over time. From there, we talked about a lot of kind of broad principles um, for people who have struggled to create active change. I talked about some environmental things, you talked about some internal things. And then finally, we did some talking about self-concept. And how sometimes it's really challenging to create these lasting changes if they're bumping their heads against the ceiling of our limiting beliefs, essentially. And that by moving more toward an active participation and creating who we are, we can sometimes uh, erase or, at the very least, turn the volume down on some of those limiting beliefs. So again, quick reminder about Rick's PNT program. I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast, and you can use the code BEWELL50 for $50 off the purchase price. Also, quick plug for the Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. I create expanded notes for our patrons over there for each episode that go into the science behind the show. And also, if you'd like to subscribe at a higher level, you have access to monthly Q&As with Rick and I, where we answer people's questions. So finally... Thank you so much for listening. If you want to do us a last favor, please subscribe to the podcast and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review on the platform of your choice, because it really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.